Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and then he died and left no offspring. And then the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know not neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. So as we get started this morning, if there are two words that you remember from this message, and if there are two words that you could write down right from the beginning, and two words that you can just memorize and think about over and over again, And keep in mind as you navigate the world today and as you think about who you are in Christ, the two words that remain relevant all the way to this day and forward, especially as we go forward. The two words that I would like for you to remember are this. Theology matters. Theology matters. Because it does Your understanding of who God is matters. And in light of who God is, who you are, and how you are to work and live and behave in the world around you matters. Because theology impacts your entire world view. And by extension, it impacts every other part of your life. Your theology matters. It matters as a husband, it matters as a, as a parent, it matters as community members. What you know about God defines what you know about mankind. And what you know about mankind defines what you know about how man is to live and behave in the world towards God and toward other people. Your theology shapes everything else in your life. What you know, believe it or not, is your theology. You have a theology, which makes all of you, every one of you, by default, a theologian. Now, I know you didn't sign up for that title, right? 
You probably won't go very quickly down to the, 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 the business card shop and get that, you know, emblazoned on a business card, you know. But you in your own right are a theologian, whether you realize it or not or accept it or not, which means you have a theological perspective on everything, whether you even realize it. You have a perspective on God and who he is and what makes him God. You have a perspective on how you can have a relationship with him. You have a perspective on mankind in general, and that influences how you interact and treat other people. You have a perspective on the church. That's going to shape how you actually interact with the church and how you participate in gatherings and what you think the church is supposed to do or not supposed to do. You have a perspective on sin and hell, right? You have a, you have a perspective on redemption and salvation. You have a perspective on the Word of God, and what that means. You have, you have a perspective on the institution of the family and the institution of marriage. You have a theological perspective on, on all of these things, whether you actually know it or not. And whether your perspective is right or wrong, it is still a perspective that you have. You have a theology, and that theology matters. And the reason why it matters... The reason why it matters is because a true theology leads to worship it leads to life and it leads to truth. But a false theology leads to error and misunderstanding and sin and death. In fact, all false teachings, all false teachings, whether it's the prosperity gospel, whether it's moralistic therapeutic deism, or whether it's the teachings of the LDS church, all of them have their roots in the exact same issue. And that issue is false theology. They, are re they were rooted indelibly in a false understanding or a false view of God and a false view of how God has revealed himself, which is his word. Moralistic therapeutic deism sees God as this benevolent you know, entity who is there to help us get through life and help us to become better people, that that's the sole purpose of God's existence. The prosperity gospel views God as this, this wish-granting genie that we just simply need to learn the formula of how to ma manipulate him through prayer, and he will do all we ask him to do if we'll just simply have enough faith. The LDS church, on the other hand, they, their view of scriptures is that the scriptures that we have are corrupt and incomplete, that they needed an additional revelation. And they view God as simply just a step above mankind, that he was once a man, and now he lives as God, right? But he's one God in the line of many other gods who went before him, and that Godhood itself is something that even man can attain by his own effort if he will just work hard enough and do all the right things. All false teaching have at their roots a false theology. And the truth is we have seen this in our lives and our world, but this is not anything new at all. Right? This has been the issue for thousands and thousands of years. People have had a false view of God, and people have had a false view of His Word. And that right there, brothers and sisters, is the point of what we're going to talk about today. That's what we're going to see in the text today. People who really think that they know the Scriptures having a completely, fundamentally flawed view of God and the Word of God. So turn with me to Mark chapter 12. And we're going to be looking at verse 18. And before we actually get in the text, let me just remind you of where we are in the story, because the context is important. So chapter 11, you know, really was a huge transition in the gospel, if you remember. Jesus finishes his three years of ministry in Galilee. 
right? And then on Palm Sunday, he rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of specific prophecies, declaring by his actions that he's exactly what they were expecting him to be, the Messiah, that he is the coming king. Right? And he comes with celebration, and the city is electric, and people are excited that he's there. And the very first thing he does is that he demonstrates right, his authority as the king by pronouncing judgment against Israel itself, and then driving out the merchants in the temple, if you remember that dramatic scene. And then the following day, the religious leaders come to Jerusalem, the religious leaders known as the Sanhedrin. These are the, the elite leaders come to confront Jesus. Everybody's in a hurry today. That's okay. They come to confront Jesus and they question his authority to which Jesus successfully turns the tables on them, pronounces judgment against them as well. And then he declares that they have no authority of him over him whatsoever. And this insult to them and this threat to their power enrages these leaders. And they want to have him arrested, but guess what? They won't do it. They don't have the courage to do so because he's very popular and it's politically dangerous to touch him. You see, politics has been influencing people's decisions for thousands of years, and it's the exact same thing we see today. That's why we see cities burning. That's why we see mayors afraid to use force to put these things down. It's because of politics. It's the same back then as well. They can't simply, you know, have him arrested because the crowd might turn on them, but they also can't allow him to go unchallenged. They can't allow him to continue to do what he's doing because he's a threat to their authority. So something must be done to get rid of him. And so they come up with an idea. And the idea is this, is to question Jesus publicly on difficult issues in order to try to trip him up or get him to say something that's very unpopular or something that is untrue. Right? This is something that, that happens in our world as well. It's something very familiar to us. A popular person who claims to be a Christian will eventually be asked very difficult questions. Just think about Drew Brees, right? People will ask the, the, the explosive questions, like the question that is most asked of people who claim to be Christians, who are public figures, is what is your view on same-sex marriage or same-sex relationships? That is a loaded question, and everybody knows it, because invariably... Someone's going to ask that question, right? And if they answer that question, either way, somebody's going to be upset. So if they say, well, we believe what the Bible says about same-sex marriage, then the culture immediately is going to hate them and reject them and call for them to be boycotted and, and to be canceled because they're, they're bigots, according to the culture. But if they soft-pedal the issue, they try not to answer it because they don't want to offend anybody, Right? Then, they, then they're really what they're, they're demonstrating is they're not really bold in their proclamation of the gospel. And they reveal to, to everyone around them that they're not really, really rooted on biblical truth. Either way, it's going to cost them something. Either way, one group of people are going to be looking at them like going, you know, you're really just not the right person here for this. It's a question that creates a lot of pressure um, from, from, for anyone who, who is asked this. And, and these are the kinds of questions that, that, you know, that, that they were sending to Jesus to, to ask of him. 
These men were asking those kinds of explosive questions in order to create some type of controversy. They're trying to, 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 to ask these loaded questions that no matter how he answers them, it would create trouble for him. What they were wanting to do is trap him with his words. And so the first group of people we saw last week that they sent to him, went to him, were the Pharisees and the Herodians. And what's interesting about that, that group of people is these guys are political rivals, They don't really like each other, but they have a common enemy, Jesus. They both want to see him dead because Jesus is a threat to both of their power structures. He's a threat to the Pharisees' religious power, and he's a threat to the Herodians' political and economic power. And so what do they do? They come to him and try to trap Jesus by asking him one of the most controversial questions of the day about Jewish people paying taxes to Rome. And they believed that no matter how he answered that question, like the, what do you think about same-sex marriage question, that no matter how he answered that question, that he was going to be in trouble with some group of people somewhere, and either he would lose popularity with the people uh, in general enabling them to arrest him, or he would say something that would cause the Romans uh, to come and, and arrest him themselves. And so they thought that they had him cornered, if you remember, but Jesus, right, destroyed their plans spectacularly. Jesus answered the question in a way that that demonstrated, number one, their wisdom is beyond all of them, but he also makes it clear that both Caesar and God have a rightful claim upon everyone, but God's claim is supreme, which is exactly the issue we've been dealing with, even in our own time. That the government absolutely has a right and makes a claim on our lives, whether it's taxes or whether it's by laws, as long as those things do not infringe upon God's claim upon us. But this failure to trap Jesus in his words right, did not stop these men from trying. Instead, they send to Jesus another group of people to ask another difficult question. And so this is where we pick up our story. It says in verse 18, The Sadducees came to see him who say that there is no resurrection. And so now we are introduced uh, for the first time in Mark to this group of people, this Jew, these Jewish leaders, who are called the Sadducees. And they um, are, for us, an, kind of an enigmatic group of people because there's not a lot that, that's known about them. Um, you know, they, the Bible doesn't really actually talk a lot about them. It does make reference to them a few times, and we do understand a little bit of their theology from the Bible, but, but really to flesh out our understanding, uh, we've had to turn to the historical record to find more about them uh, outside of the Bible. We learn a lot, actually, the most of what we learn about them is, is from the Jewish historian, the first century Jewish historian, Josephus. He happened to actually be there, and he knew about these, this group of people. And what we know about them is the Sadducees were a small group of men, but they were very influential, very, very politically connected, right? They were Jewish men who really were on the in. They were rich, they were sophisticated, they were well-educated, politically connected, and they dominated the Sanhedrin and the temple leadership. They were very, very influential in the priesthood authority that surrounded um, uh, their faith. And they, if you want to compare them to something, they're like the ultra-uber-rich in our times. Super rich, very aloof, very sophisticated, you know, high above kind of everyone else in their own estimation. Uh, and because they're rich, they, they tend to favor keeping the status quo at the time. They're not looking to make waves with Rome. And the reason why is because, because, because they've got it good. Like the Herodians, they're benefiting from this political arrangement, 
And so there's no reason for them to want to disrupt the way things are. They're making money. I mean, that's the root of what we see even today. I mean, as, as, as mom and pop shops are, are, are going broke because of the way that, that we're handling this, this outbreak, while corporations are becoming more and more enriched, obviously they've got a stake in keeping things the way they are. That's what we see all the time in business. People always do what's favorable to them. And that's exactly the way the, um, the Sadducees were. They had no reason to make waves. They were benefiting and getting rich on that particular system, which means they were not particularly popular with the people. The people didn't like them. The people didn't, didn't, didn't want, to be, want them to be their leaders. They actually despised these men. But their wealth and their influence keeps them entrenched in power in Judea, which, again, we know of wealthy people who are pulling strings politically that people despise, but they have lots of power. Why? They got lots of money. They are politically savvy, and they have lots of resources. But notice it says that they say that there's no resurrection. I mean, this is what Mark wants you to know. This is how he's distinguishing this group of people from everyone else that Jesus has talked about, that they believe that there is no resurrection. The Sadducees are, in essence, the theological rivals of the Pharisees, which, again, makes this a a strange partnership, right? Because, again, they are on on a different spectrum because the Pharisees, like the vast majority of the Jews, including the disciples, believed In life after death, they believed that something was going to happen after death, and they believed in the general resurrection of the dead. Even that was reflected in Lazarus' sister when Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, you know, that that your brother's going to live again. She goes, I know that at the resurrection, you're going to raise him up. She was looking forward to the end of time like everyone else was. All of the Jews believed in the resurrection, but the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Which seems really kind of strange, doesn't it? Because these men are actually renowned experts in the scriptures. They're, they're not dummies. These men are experts in the law. They know the law by heart. They know every word. They know every syllable. They know everything there is to know about the law. They have studied these texts continually. That is who they are. But the issue is, the foundational issue for them is, is they have a false view of the scriptures. You see, they believed that the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses or the law, they believed that those are the only ones that are the word of God. They believed that that was the only thing that was written down that is actually God's word. They believed the five books of Moses were authoritative and everything else wasn't. They didn't see the writings of the prophets like Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea. They didn't see them as as scripture. And they didn't see the Psalms that were written down by David right, as Scripture. And they didn't see the Proverbs or any of the wisdom literature or anything else as the Word of God. Their theology was those five books and those five books alone. So they limited their, their theology to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Which means then they were limiting their understanding and their theology of God, which was revealed in these other books as well. And as a result, the Sadducees not only denied the resurrection, they denied all forms of life after death. They didn't believe in life after death at all. They believed that when you died, your body died, your soul went with it, you ceased to exist, right? Which means they believed like, that this was it. This is the life that you live, and that's it. Which mean, but, but also they, they didn't believe in things like 
angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in the Messiah because obviously they didn't believe any of the Messianic texts. And they didn't believe that the Messiah was going to come and, and do anything at all. Right? They had a very high view of man's free will, which typically happens when you have a flawed view of, of God. And they denied God's total sovereignty. They believed that God was powerful, but they didn't believe that he was completely sovereign. In other words, they were diametrically opposed to the orthodox, you know, traditional understanding of the scriptures and of God himself. Now you might say, why in the world then would you even believe in a God if, if there's no life after death? I mean, what is even the point of that? I mean, because if you believe the soul dies when the body dies, why would you want to believe in God or try to honor this God or worship this God? I mean, really, why would you want to please him? If there's nothing to look forward to, then why in the world would you want to serve that God? Well, the answer is simple. It benefited them in this life. You see, there are lots of people in ministry, even now today, around the world, who are in ministry, who don't even believe in God. There are atheists that are ministers. There are people who, who claim to be Orthodox believers that don't have any, any belief at all in the God of the Bible. Why are they in ministries? Because it benefits them. Ministry gives them an influence. Ministry gives them influence politically and culturally. Ministry gives them a platform from which to speak. Ministry provides their living. Ministry, for some of these ministers, makes them very, very rich to the shame of the church. Ministry gives them a sense of purpose. And make no mistake, the Sadducees benefited from their religious and political influence. Now, I want you to understand, I believe that they, be, they, that they believed or they thought they believed in, in God. Right? I don't believe that they were atheists. I believe that they believed God existed and that they thought that they were trusting in Him. But their understanding of God from, the, from their view of scriptures was that God created Israel to be His covenant people in this life, in this life alone. And those who were God's chosen covenant people and people who obeyed the law, that God prospered those people in this life, right? Because that's what they were concerned with, this life. They were concerned about being wealthy and being influential and leaving their, their, their children more than what they had. They believed that the purpose of life was to live your best life now, so to speak. We thought that that was something new, right? If there's no life after death, then, what, then, then you might as well live for now, right? You might as well get everything you can now. You need to get what you can get now. You need to enjoy everything you can enjoy now if there is no afterlife. This, is, this was like the first century version of the prosperity gospel. You live a good moral life. You follow the rules, devote yourself to God, and he's going to bless you and prosper you in this life. That was their theology because there's nothing for them beyond this life. So you might as well do the best you can now, right? You might as well have everything you can now. They had a flawed theology of the scriptures, which led to a flawed theology of God, which means these men had a very flawed theology of mankind itself. And so they, they come to Jesus with this flawed theology, asking him a question that they think is controversial, right? They think this is a controversial question for those who believe in the resurrection. They actually think it's, it's the equivalent of the, the, the question people ask Christians now, the problem of pain. You know what, you know what the big question that gets asked of, of, of believers that they think is going to stump us? If God is so good and all-knowing, all-powerful, then how come 
you know, bad stuff happens to good people, right? They think that when people ask that question, they think they got you. They think that you, there's no possible way you can believe in a God that is good, that is powerful, that is just and benevolent, but at the same time allows suffering in the world, right? This is the kind of question they're asking here. They think they've got him. They think they have pinned him down. They ask this question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife, but leaves no child, that man must take the, the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died, left no offspring. And then the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. If the resurre- in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now I want you to notice, that the first thing I want you to notice is that they, like the Pharisees and the Herodians, they begin by using flattery. I mean, the Sanhedrin came out and said, who do you think you are? Who gave you this authority? And that didn't work out so well. So now they're trying to be like, hey, you know, teacher. In fact, that's what they call him. They call him teacher. It's a, it's, it's, it's a title of respect, right? It's a respected position. So they call him teacher. By the way, you know, it's the same thing with like pastor. People call me pastor. I take it as a sign of respect. But there have been times when people say pastor to me that it's not flattery. They're, they're, making, they're, they're digging at me a little bit. And that's okay. But they, they start off with flattery, and then they use flattery, and, 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 you know, but their intentions in their question itself is very, very hostile. They're looking to trap him. And what you need to realize is that the question they're asking isn't something that they just made up. They didn't just think this up and say, oh, that's a good one. Let's go ask him that. Right? This is a question that the, that the Sadducees had used multiple time in debates with the Pharisees. This was, at the time, a question that was really difficult for them to answer. And when it was brought up in these discussions, it would actually make the, the, the Pharisees look foolish because they're trying to justify, well, how's that work? Well, whose wife is it? And, and they're trying to explain this away, and they never really are able to do so. And so it's worked on the Pharisees, and so they didn't think, well, might as well work on Jesus too. But the fact is this question actually had become kind of a joke among the Sadducees. Whenever somebody would bring up the doctrine you know, of resurrection, they're like, yeah, what about that wife you know, and, and that se- their seven husbands? How's that going to work for you? you know? It's just kind of like, you know, it was just kind of assumed that this was a bulletproof kind of way to deal with, with, the, with the issue of, of, of the resurrection. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is the authority that they cite here. Now, Here's the thing. So I'm, I'm going I'm to draw a line here. I don't want to make too much of a deal about this point here. It's just an observation that I had. But I think it's telling, and I'd just like for you to think about it as well. Right? They don't say the Scriptures say. They don't say God in His Word says. Notice they cite Moses as the authority. Right? They, wrote, they say, Moses wrote for us. Now, I'm not saying what they said is wrong. What I'm saying is I think that that really reveals the traditional assumption that they're reading into the text. Right? I think the reason why they say it that way is because they are thinking of Moses as authoritative. I'm not saying they're not thinking of God as being authoritative, but I'm thinking that they're really putting a lot of emphasis on Moses himself. Right? And, that, and, and that the only thing, again, their, their, their tradition is the only thing that's authoritative is what Moses wrote. You see, I, I think even we as, as Christians can look at preachers and theologians and other people 
And even though that we know that they're, they're, they're speaking on behalf of God and that they're quoting you know, scriptures, I think sometimes we might even lean too much on their authority as well. Does that, does that make sense? We have a tendency to look up to people and lean too heavily on them. You know what I mean? I think, I, and I think that maybe this is kind of the case here. Right? Their, their tradition is really showing through that, that they're basically saying that Moses is the authoritative and the only one, the only authoritative speaker for God. Right? And so I think this reveals their flawed view of scriptures. Now, the third thing that, that, that I want you to notice, and which is, is, is this, this question itself, it really kind of might seem strange to us because we don't think in terms like this. Like, we don't think that we need to, to marry, you know, our sister-in-law if, she didn't, if they didn't have kids, right? But that's not something that, that's even remotely appropriate in our culture nowadays, Right? But, but what happens is at this time, they were practicing what was called um, Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage is from, the, from, a, from a, a, not a Greek word, but a, a Latin word, levar, which means brother-in-law. So it's brother-in-law marriage. And, and it basically comes from the law of Moses that commanded this practice, right? In the event that a man marries a woman, right? but he does not have a male child to be his heir, what he, uh, and he dies, then, then what are they supposed to do? Then the next brother in line is supposed to step up and marry her and have a child on behalf of his brother so that his family line would continue. It wouldn't even be his own child. It would be considered his brother's child. In fact, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Verses 5 and 6 is where Moses lays this out. He says, if, a brother dwell, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife that, of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. They don't want his inheritance to be, to be you know, given to somebody else that's not in the family. So her husband's brother shall go to, into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed by, to the name of the dead brother, that his name may be not blotted out of Israel. In other words, they're protecting the family line and protecting the property that rightfully belongs to that family line. Remember, the covenant relationship with God had, was attached also to the land. This was a practice to preserve the family name and the inheritance that came with it for future generations. This was a, a command by God to protect families. Now understand, when they ask this question about this, they're not looking for Jesus to give them an, a satisfactory answer. They're not expecting for him to be able to say, well, it actually goes like this. Well, the first husband is this, and the second, you know... They're, they're, they don't even think he's going to be able to answer his question because their mind is not set on the answer. And in fact, they think this is airtight. They looked at this command as evidence, as evidence that there is no life after death. Because it's the law, they think there's no way there could be a resurrection. Why? Because if there's life after death, and if there is a resurrection, then this commandment of God given through Moses is going to create conflicts in heaven. Right? That he's going to create conflicts in the afterlife. There's going to be some messy situations to sort out when people are resurrected, right? Because whose wife would the woman be? Right? Will they all be her husband? Well, that gets even messier because even the Levitical law prohibits that itself. Suddenly there's a contradiction in the law, they believe, because the woman's only allowed to have one husband. So the Pharisees saw this as a clear evidence that the idea of resurrection is false because they couldn't imagine right, 
how this messy scenario could actually resolve itself when, when the resurrection took place. All they knew, right, right, all they knew is what the law had said, and they knew enough about God that God would not permit contradictions in his character and in his law. And so they believed that this was an airtight question. This was like, gotcha, you're not going to be able to do anything with this. And they thought if Jesus denies the resurrection, he's going to lose popularity because everybody believes in the resurrection except them, right? And if Jesus then tries to talk his way around this like the Pharisees had, he's going to look like the same buffoons they are, which means he's not any more authoritative than they are, which means he's not the Messiah, which then that gives him the, the ability to, to out him as an imposter. It's supposed to be a lose-lose situation. Now understand, on the surface, I want you to hear me, on the surface, it's actually a good question. I mean, these are the kinds of questions that people ask when they begin to experience the Bible and theology. There's like, wait a minute, what's this going to be like? In fact, this was a question that was asked by one of the kids in my youth group uh, just, um, just uh, on, on Friday night. They asked, this, they asked a question similar to this. They said, if somebody marries someone, but then their spouse dies, and then they marry someone else, and they, they both die, and they're all believers, then when heaven, who's... You know, whose spouse are they? How does, how does that, that work itself out? It's a really good question. And many people have, have thought about this. And many people have worried about this for many, many years. And so understand, right, they're not asking a hypothetical question that's really out of bounds of reality. They're just, ex- they're just appealing to the extreme absurdity, you know, of, of this version. They're basically taking it and playing it for as far out as you can, you can go with this. And so they think legitimately when they're asking this question, you know, they got Jesus cornered. It's like they ask the question, they start high-fiving each other. You know what I mean? Like, all right, we got you now. What are you going to do? Well, notice what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason that you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Right? Notice that Jesus not only tells them that they're wrong, but he tells them why they're wrong. And the reason why they're wrong is the same reason every other false teacher in the world is wrong. Right? They're wrong because they have a flawed understanding of the Scriptures, and they're wrong because they have a flawed understanding of God. Notice, he says, you don't know the Scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. In fact, he starts with the power of God here. You don't know the power of God. In other words, let me just translate for you really quickly what he's saying. Your God is way too small. Your God is way too small. Your view of God and his power is just too small. This right here is one of the greatest problems that faces our culture today, by the way, is the fact that people's view of God is simply too small. People want to make the image of God like them, and they want to limit God to their imaginations. People, Most people don't see that God is completely sovereign. They don't. That's why so many people push back against Reformed theology, by the way. Not that Reformed theology is not right. It's just they, their view of God won't fit that. They don't want to embrace the, the idea that God is sovereign. Right? They don't want to see Him as fully in control. And people don't see God as completely holy and greater than we can possibly imagine. There's something in us that wants to make sure that God fits within the confines of our imaginations. They want God to be this deity that we can relate to and fully understand. Every heretical view of God always ends up being an attempt to to relate to a God that we can't relate to. 
Rather than just accepting that Jesus or that God is the indescribable creator of the universe who is so vastly different from us that we couldn't even know him unless he would actually reveal himself to us. Rather than accepting that, they create God in in a way that, that fits their understanding. And that's the issue here. Their understanding of God is limited to their tradition and limited to their their view of Scripture. Their view of God is way, way too small. And their understanding of His power is just completely inadequate. They don't see God as completely sovereign. They don't see Him as all-powerful. And so that's the very first thing He addresses here, by the way. He goes right for their understanding of God. Notice what Jesus says about those who, who are resurrected. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor give them, or, 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 nor are, or, excuse me. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Right? I'm going to tell you, if there was a way to respond to the question that they asked, this was not even on their radar. This is a surprising way to answer the question, and it's so surprising, it still kind of like shocks us today. We kind of... Like, like, in fact, right now, I'm going to even ask some of you to, like, to take a deep breath here, okay? Because this is, this is a difficult passage of Scripture right here. This is a hard passage of Scripture to deal with. And what you need to know right now is, is, is we're going to have to allow God to say what He's going to say here. We're going to have to allow Scripture to speak for itself. We're going to have to take emotions and feelings and cultures and upbringings and everything we're bringing to the text and set that aside. And we're going to have to listen very carefully what God is actually saying here. Right? Because this is one of the most important and one of the most misunderstood and mis- one of mis- the most misinterpreted texts in this section, if not in, in the Bible itself. And not only is this a misunderstood text... It's a text that causes some people really, really great concern. I mean, a lot of people look at this text and they think about the implications of what Jesus is saying here and they get upset by what he's saying. It bothers them. But let's, let's be clear. This is the key text to understanding Jesus' criticism of the Sadducees. Right? This is the key text to help us to open our eyes to to the truth of who God really is and who we are and his plan for us. So it's important we get clear about what he's saying here. And the first thing I need you to understand is what he's not saying, okay? The first thing what he's not saying is he's not saying we are going to be angels. He said we're going to be like angels. He didn't say that we're going to be angels. Now, I've heard many people say, you know, when they die, they became an Nobody becomes angels. That's not what it says here. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that they will be angels, it says they'll be like angels. And, and there's no other correlating uh, verses to support that. So when you see in the movie somebody dies and they get wings and a halo, that is not what happens. Besides, that's not even a picture of, of angels anyway. They're terrifying creatures. That's why the, the, the first thing that people say, the, the angels have to say to people is what? Don't be afraid, right? So they're not going to be angels. This is not what he's saying here. There are two different kinds of beings, right? They were created differently for different purposes. They're not even the same species. So we can just get that out of our heads. Jesus is not saying people were going to become angels, right? He said they're going to become like angels. And what he means by that is, number one, they're not going to die. They're going to be immortal like angels, right? Because angels are immortal. Number two is that they're going to do what angels do. They're going to serve God, 
That's what we're going to do when, during the resurrection. When we go to heaven, we're going to serve God forever. Here's the difference. The focus of our lives for eternity will be service for God. Now, right now, as much as we try to serve God with all of our lives, we don't always do it. There's lots of things in the way. Right? There are many things that distract us from, from serving God. Right? I wrote a whole book on that. Work gets in the way of our service to God. Schools, conflicts, sickness, relationships, COVID-19, you know, riots, political issues. You know, your neighbor who won't turn the music down at 1230 at night. The other neighbor who wants to set off uh, firecrackers until 3 o'clock in the morning. Right? There are lots of things that are going to get in the way of you actually actively worshiping God. But in, but in heaven, or when the resurrection happens... Nothing will get in the way. Right? Even as much as we try to honor God, we're going to get distracted and focus on Him here because we focus on other things, including ourselves. But angels have no such distractions. They are continually in the presence of God and continually they are focused on God. In fact, what does, it say? What does Isaiah say? What does Revelation say the angels are doing over and over again? They're, they're shouting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what they do day and night. They're focused on God all the time. That is what it's going to be like for us as believers. We're going to stand in awe of God for an eternity. We're going to serve Him and worship Him forever. Right? So in that way, we'll become like them. Right? But then, which leads to Jesus' main point about the resurrection. The main point that Jesus is making here, we get tripped up on the marriage aspect, but what Jesus is saying here is that life in eternity, that resurrection life is going to be vastly different than it is now. That's the point that Jesus is making here. It's going to be vastly different than the way things are right now. He said the problem that the Pharisees had in their low view of God is it caused them to assume that resurrection life must be exactly like life today, but maybe just an upgraded version of it. Right? It's, it's like life, you know, 1.6 or something. You know what I mean? Not even 2.0 yet. They look around at the world and they think, okay, well, if we just clean a few things up, this would be a pretty good place to live, right? Maybe that's what it meant for, for resurrection. That, 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 that's what the doctrine for them meant, is that life was the same, but just a little bit better. But that's not how the Bible talks about resurrection life. That's not how the Bible talks about the afterlife at all. The resurrection life is going to be radically different than it is right now. Which means it's going to be radically better than what it is right now. That's why it's our hope, right? Right? It's what we're hoping on. The Bible says there's not going to be any more pain. Praise the Lord for that. That's a radical difference between now and then. I woke up in pain today. How many of you do? did? All right, just about everybody, right? There'll be no more sorrow. That's a radical difference. There'll be no more war. No more strife, no more conflict, no more sin. We don't even know what that even looks like. No more tears. Jesus said in Revelation that the former things will be passed away. This is a world, an existence that we don't even have a context to even imagine. Life in the resurrection is not going to be like what it is now with just a few better features, right? It's not like taking your old car and getting one with air conditioning. It's something completely different. It's altogether better in every possible conceivable way. 
right? We're, when we, when we're going to have perfect fellowship with God. As much as I like to spend time with God, I have no idea what that even looks like. We're, we're going to have perfect fellowship with each other. You don't even know what that looks like. We're going to have perfect bodies. I look forward to that. We're going to have perfect emotions. I live for that day. Right? We have no... We're going to have perfect abilities. There's no such thing as mistakes anymore. We have no context for even understanding what that's going to be looking like. All we know is there's going to be radically different. And the picture that we have, the shadow that we have, the, the, the faint image that we have of this difference is the radically different life that Christ's followers are called to live in now. That's one of the things we talk about over and over again. If you're a Christian, you're called to live a radically different life. You live a life that doesn't make sense to the rest of the world at all. We're called to walk in grace and love and f- radical forgiveness. We're, we're called to love our enemies. Come on. You know that's a radical difference because that's not even instinctual. The rest of the world will encourage us to hate our enemies. Right? Because that's the way things are. Living the Christian life is radically different. We're called to show mercy and not repay evil from evil. We're even called to withhold Judgment and justice and let God be the one who gives out vengeance. We're called to forgive even the worst kinds of people. The Christian life is radically different now. How much more will it be different than when God makes things new? The resurrected life is beyond what we can possibly even imagine. And so their question that they're asking It's not even clever. It just simply displays their ignorance of who God is. It really reveals how shallow their theology is. They have a really low view of God. They don't understand His power, which is the root of every false teaching. Now let's quickly address what Jesus is saying here. Because this is the thing that's on people's mind. This is the part of this text that I was thinking, can I just skip this and go on to something else? He says we're going to be like angels, and he says they will not marry nor be given to marriage. Right? So their understanding of marriage and the law in this life, what Jesus is saying, their understanding of that is not applicable in the resurrection. It's not going to be the same. It's going to be very different. And this right here causes some people very great concern. Because the idea of marriage not being a thing in the resurrection upsets a lot of people because they love their spouse. I love mine. They love their husbands. They love their wives. And they've been best friends for years and years and years and years. There's a deep emotional connection to one another. And so the assumption is, at least internally we have, that there's no marriage or heaven and earth I mean, if there's no, there's no marriage in heaven in the resurrection, then that closeness that we have then is going to be lost. That's the sense of loss that we are holding on to. But here's what we need to understand. Jesus 
didn't say anything about our love for each other. He didn't say anything about the connection we have with each other. This is what we have to be very careful in. People want to read something and they want to then answer all the questions. Sometimes the Bible doesn't tell us the answer and we should just then be satisfied with, okay, I don't know. And not try to read too much into it. But he didn't say that our relationships with other people will cease. Right? That's not what the Bible tells us at all. I firmly believe that our friends will be our friends and we will recognize them. We will see them. One of the kids asked, hey, will we recognize each other? The Bible says that we're going to be resurrected with our resurrected bodies, which means we're going to live to our genetic potential. We're still going to be us. Right? I believe that our children will still be connected to us in that way. We're going to have that close relationship with them. We've watched them grow up. We're going to have those memories continue with us. The Bible does not anywhere say that we're not going to remember anything. It doesn't tell us that. And I also believe that, that, the, that, that our spouses will still be emotionally and deeply connected to us. That this was a beautiful thing that God had created in us. Right? This is something that gets carried over into the next life. Right? Imagine what your relationships would be like. They're perfect. Right? Can you imagine what your relationships would be like if they're not marred by sin? Imagine how your friendships would be if, if you could have friendships where there was no jealousy, there was no misunderstanding, no impatience, no selfishness, right? no you know, hidden jealousies. Imagine what our relationships would be if, if we could just truly love each other the way God created us to. Right. Imagine your relationship with your spouse. If there was a point in your relationship, there was no remembrance of wrongdoings. If there was no record of fights and arguments and hurt feelings. Imagine your, your relationship with your spouse when there's no underlying tension of things that happened six months ago, right? Imagine how perfect your relationship with your spouse would be when there's no weight of family and work and all the other troubles. You see, that's the radical different kind of nature that the new life brings to those who trust in Christ. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying you don't understand because you don't understand how different things are going to be. You take sin out of the equation and everything changes in ways that you can't even possibly fathom. Not to mention, there's not going to be a need for marriage in the afterlife. And this is a theological issue. This is the one that we have to square our heads with the Word of God. Right? Marriage was created in this life for a clear set of purposes. The first purpose was procreation. Marriage was created so that babies would be born. It's about having youngins. It's about creating another generation. People die. It's a continuation on of, of our, our lives through other people. That's how the covenant promise got passed down from generation to generation in Israel. It's through children. Marriage right, was the fulfillment of the creation mandate to be fruitful into what? To multiply. In the resurrection, there will no longer be death. 
so there will not be any need for procreation. Now, I will say the Bible doesn't explicitly say people aren't having kids in heaven. It doesn't say that they will. What I will say is it doesn't seem to be a need at that time for procreation. Secondly, marriage is an illustration. It was given to us as an illustration of the gospel. It's the picture of, of Christ and His church and His faithfulness to His church and the promise of Him taking care of her and leading her and guiding her in love and sacrifice. It's a picture of marriage. It's a picture of the gospel. That's what marriage is. And over and over again, we see that, that marriage is an illustration of the reality right, of God's faithfulness. And guess what? In the resurrection, we won't need that illustration anymore because we will be living in that illustration. Third, the purpose of marriage is is procreation, illustration, but thirdly, it's also sanctification. God gave us marriage as a sanctifying influence in our lives. He gave us one another to help each other to grow in holiness and in purity and in faithfulness and discipleship. Marriage is the instrument that God has been using to help couples and societies and communities grow closer toward Him. That's why the first thing that our culture has done is destroyed marriage. Marriage is a sanctifying effect on people, on families, and communities, and even whole nations. Well, guess what? In heaven, we are going to be completely sanctified. There will not be any need for its sanctifying influence anymore. The resurrection... We will be completely perfected. That's what our hope is. We are justified through faith. We're being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit and the the Word of God. And one day we'll be glorified with God. We will stand before Him perfected. And then fourth, some people, and I'm going to add the fourth one here. Some people say that marriage was created for companionship. Well, here's the thing. Our need for companionship will be completely fulfilled in Christ. Now, I believe that we will have companionship with one another. We're going to love each other you know, because God loves you. We're supposed to love what God loves, right? But our greatest need will be fulfilled in Christ. Our greatest desires will be fulfilled in Him. Our greatest yearnings, longings for closeness will be filled, fulfilled in that intimacy with Him. Now, again, the Bible doesn't say that, that our relationships are going to be like completely useless. That's not at all what it seems to be the pattern In fact, let me just tell you, the Bible tells us a lot, but it doesn't tell us everything. And this is where we have to be really, really careful. And what we need to do is we need to come to terms with this subject by trusting in God. That's really where this place brings us. It brings us all the way to the precipice and ask the question, will you trust him now? Will you trust him? Because you don't fully understand what's coming next. You don't know how this is going to work out. You don't know how the parts and pieces fit together. Are you going to trust him and just trust the fact that he is what he says that he is? That he is all good. That he is all just. That he is all right. That he is sovereign and in control. That he has promised unequivocally to work all things out for your good. See, Jesus demonstrates how just insufficient their view of God is by illustrating how they don't even know the power of God. And then Jesus then turns and drives the point home and says, you don't even know the scriptures. And what we need to realize is is, is that Jesus, when he says they don't know the scriptures, he is challenging them in the area of their expertise. 
You ever seen when somebody gets challenged in their area of expertise? Like when a doctor says something and then somebody says, you know what you're talking about? The doctor's like, wait a minute. Like, I have this degree from this, you know. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. He is challenging them in their area of expertise. This is a huge insult to them because they were, they were renowned experts in the law. They were experts in the first five books of the Bible. And, and Jesus says to them, right, that their problem is they don't even know the scriptures. I can't even imagine how infuriating that must have been. I mean, these guys could just like recite verse after verse off the top of their head. The resurrection is actually revealed over and over again in the Old Testament, by the way. Like in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when somebody says, well, the resurrection's not in the Old Testament, yeah, just point them to Daniel 12. It says, at that time, man, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is a very clear picture of the resurrection of the dead and the judgment of mankind. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19 says, you sh- uh, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You shall dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth shall give birth to the dead. Again, the picture of the resurrection. And the same thing with Psalm 16, chapter 9 and 10, Psalm 49, verse 15. Over and over again. Scripture confirms the doctrine of the resurrection throughout the Old Testament. But if you remember, right, he doesn't have to cite these scriptures because, first of all, they weren't going to listen to him anyway. Remember, they didn't believe and accept that testimony. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible. They believed that the resurrection, right, was not true because it wasn't explicitly taught in the five books of Moses. But Jesus brilliantly demonstrates just how really little they knew about the scriptures they, they professed to know in, uh, intimately. He shows them exactly how wrong they were. Jesus went to Exodus, by the way, the second book of, of the, uh, the Pentateuch. He went to Exodus and demonstrates the resurrection was apparent even then. He says, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but God of the living. You are quite wrong. You see, what what we need to understand is God was in a covenant relationship with his people. And until we begin to think in covenants, we're not going to fully understand what he's saying here. But what we need to see is that covenants were understood to be something that were between living people, and that when somebody died, the covenant was over. It's kind of like the covenant of marriage even today. The covenant of marriage even today is supposed to be an unbreakable covenant until what happens? Until death do us part. That's that's why vows say that so often. These men understood that covenants were made between living people. That covenants, right, the, the, the covenants were not made with, from living people to, to, to dead people. But here God is identifying himself 
and this is important, God is identifying himself, present tense, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The language clearly illustrates that he is referring to his ongoing covenant relationship to them. Otherwise, he would say, I am the God who was the God of Abraham, who was the God of Isaac, who was the God of Jacob. Why? Because they cease to exist. They're not alive anymore. I'm not in covenant with them anymore. That would make the Sadducees correct. But Jesus points out, makes it clear that God identifies himself with the ongoing covenant, the covenant that doesn't cease. And he connects that covenant to the patriarchs, to Moses, to I mean, not Moses, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, this is proof of the resurrection because God is the God of the living and not the dead. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob may be physically dead, but they are spiritually very much alive is what this text is saying. And they're awaiting, just like everyone else, the resurrection of the dead. And so Jesus once again destroys their argument, this bulletproof argument that they had worked on for for decades that they thought was the ticket. Jesus undoes it with just a few words and demonstrates the folly of even the most educated of men. Now, what do we do with this text? I mean, because this story is going to continue on. They're going to continue to question him, and we're going to address those things as we go along. But what do we do? How do we live in light of this truth? Well, the first thing I think that we have to do is we need to submit our minds to God's word. We just need to come to that place where we're going to submit ourselves to it, that we're going to learn it, that we're going to accept it, and that we're going to, to live by it and trust it, even when it's hard. I'm going to tell you, there are times that I read scriptures and texts that I just I struggle with. I mean, the doctrine of hell still bothers me. I don't like the idea of anybody suffering permanently in eternity. That's, it bothers me. And I'll tell you what, the one, script, the one doctrine that really bothered me a long time was the sovereignty of God. I had a lot of questions. It took a long time for God to really help me to, 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 to live in that. But the scriptures have just basically forced me to do so. I made a decision to go where the scriptures lead, and that's where I ended up, is where, where they led. Right? We need to accept what the, the, the Bible says, even if the answers aren't clear for us, even if we are having, we're standing you know, at the precipice going, Lord, I can't see into the darkness. We need to say, yes, Lord, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to believe that what you're doing is right, good, and just, and you're going to do what's best for me. Right? The word of God needs to shape our understanding of the world, not the other way around. And I think that's one of the hardest things for Christians to do, but this is something we absolutely must do. We must come to the place where we're willing to set aside our emotions, we're willing to set aside our backgrounds, we're willing to set aside our traditions, and believe me, we all have traditions, even those of us who try to get rid of them. We all have something that influences the way that we see the text. And we, to the best of our ability, we need to set those things aside and come to the scriptures and say, Lord, speak to me and I'll, I will abide in what you're telling me. So we must first submit our minds to the word of God. Secondly, we need to trust in God's sovereign power. That's what it really comes down to. That's what the gospel is all about, is turning to God in faith and taking him at his promise and wholly trusting in him. He is holy, righteous, and just, and he will do what is right, and he will, he will do what is good. And what that will be in the resurrection life will be better than you can even imagine. 
I mean, we just think about taking conflict out of this place and we already know that it's going to be better. Imagine what it's going to be like when all the negative things are gone and sin no longer has influence over any part of the world anymore. So we need to trust in his sovereign power that we also need to grow in our understanding of him. All right? This is where the Sadducees failed. They failed to continue to grow in their understanding of who God is. All right? God calls us to a deeper and deeper and deeper knowledge of him. God continually reveals himself to us through the scriptures. What we can know about him is inexhaustible in the word of God. Right? We're called to grow in that understanding and the knowledge of him. By the way, the more you know him, the more you're going to trust him. The more you know him, the easier it is to be able to follow him, even in the difficult places. And then lastly, I would say, would he be prepared to defend our hope? Because the thing is, is like, just like the Sadducees, there are people out there in the world that have good questions that are going to challenge what we believe. There are going to be times when people are going to ask the hard questions and you're going to go, I don't know. And for some people, they're going to be like, wait a minute, I'm just going to talk to my pastor. I'm not going to worry about that. But other people, that'll, cause, that'll start a crisis of faith in some people. Some people come out of that crisis of faith and some people don't. And I think it's incumbent upon us as we grow in our understanding, as we become prepared to be able to defend our position. Not to say we have every answer to every question, but that we know what we believe and why we believe what we believe. You see, Jesus didn't even have to address their question directly. He basically said, your understanding of this whole thing is off, and here's why. Let me show you. By the way, that's why, that's, that's why when atheists tell me that there's no God, I come back to the fact, well, I, I don't believe that you know what you're talking about. And they say, why? Because the Bible makes it really, really clear that you're lying right now. What do you mean I'm lying? Because you believe in God. You just are denying, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Well, I say that I'm not. How can you say the Bible says that? Well, I'm going to take either God's word for it or your word for it. And guess what? I'm taking his. Just the way that is. You know, I don't have to address their arguments in the way that they want me to because I'm confident in what I believe. I know what I believe and why I believe it. Right? And that we all should aspire to grow in that. And that's what it means, brothers and sisters, to follow Christ. You see, when Jesus, so many chapters ago, said the words in chapter 1, follow me, and we make it our mission to do so, he didn't say that it's going to be easy. He didn't say that it wasn't going to be without trouble. He just said that in the end, it'll be worth it. Right? And that's where our hope lies. And so as we grow then, let us be people who do these things, submit our minds to his word, trust in his sovereign power, continue to grow in love and our understanding of him, and be prepared to give an answer to people for the hope that's within us. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.